we look at the life of Judas, we find that there are 40 verses in the Bible that refer to Judas's betrayal of Christ. I think that the Holy Spirit wants us to face the reality of apostasy. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Mark chapter 3, and I want to begin reading in verse 13. I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Verse 13, And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. This is God's word. Please be seated as we bow briefly for prayer. Father, again we come before your throne asking one last time that you would help us as we analyze the lives of these 12 apostles. Lord, we understand, Lord, that as we look at their lives, we have before us an example in many ways of godliness and in other ways examples of waywardness. And yet in all of it, we see your grace shine through. So give us insight now as we look to this last apostle, Judas Iscariot, we pray your spirit would be with us, that we would be those that are examining our hearts this morning to see whether or not we are truly in the faith. So we ask your help as we look at this passage in the life of Judas, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I think the point of this series uh, bears repeating to be clear about what we are doing and what we are not doing as we come to the end of it. We are here, I think that we're all agreed to the fact that we are here to give glory to God for changing ordinary men into extraordinary men through the saving gospel. We are here to examine the twelve apostles. We're here to examine these men, but really behind that, what we're trying to achieve is exalting God. We're examining these men, but really we are exalting God. We're looking at these men not so much for the reason that we want to look to them, but we want to look to them in order that we can see God in them. We are not to seek what man in himself can do for God, but what God in himself can do for man. And that is what we see when we study the lives of these apostles. At the same time, God came to reveal himself in the form of a man, didn't he? Namely, Jesus Christ. And he has chosen to indwell all of his true people with the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the Bible tells us that when we look at other Christians, when we look at other examples of godliness, we are actually seeing Christ. This seems to me to be exactly what Paul's point was in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1 when he says, Be imitators of me as I also am an imitator of Christ. We see in the Apostle Paul and all of the Apostles Christ. So we are looking to them to see what is beyond them so that we see Christ. Another very critical thing to keep in mind is that God's kingdom began to break through the darkness when Jesus came into the world and called the apostles. John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The darkness is being dispelled. The true light has come into the world. John also tells us in that gospel that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. There were those that rejected the light for fear that their evil deeds would be exposed, but there were some who came to the light by the sovereign grace of God, and those men to begin with were the twelve apostles, those that we call the twelve apostles. Israel as a whole, that is ethnic Israel as a whole, rejected him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but in his sovereignty he called to himself the twelve apostles. These twelve apostles became the foundation of the New Testament church, the number 12 being providential, not accidental. That number 12 signifying that as Jesus promised to bring salvation through Abraham's seed, which was composed of the 12 tribes of Israel, such a promise would find its fulfillment in the 12 apostles, who would then go into all the world, preach the Gospels to the nations, so that that part of the prophecy in the book of Genesis about the Gospel reaching the ends of the world would come true, that all the nations of the world would eventually be blessed through Father Abraham as the twelve apostles, representing the twelve tribes of Israel, would preach the gospel. And so the apostles, together we could say alongside of the Old Testament prophets who declared the same gospel, are the foundation of the church. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 2. He said that we are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So as God's holy temple, we are being built 
Through the preaching of the gospel, one conversion at a time, one person at a time, we are being born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit so that God's kingdom increasingly expands in the world. This foundation was laid by the apostles upon whom the rest of the New Testament church is built. Peter tells us that we are not dead stones as part of this building, but we are living stones of the structure. We're a building of God that speaks. We speak forth the gospel, and as we speak forth the gospel, other living stones are added to this structure. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said that Christ was a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then in verse 5, Peter says, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As we live according to the law of God as born-again believers, we become the mouthpiece of God declaring the gospel into the world, declaring God's law into the world as we live consistent with the message of that gospel. God's kingdom expands. God's church is built one stone at a time. All of this began with the foundation of the New Testament apostles who together with the Old Testament Prophets who came before them are the foundation of the New Testament church. So it's helpful to have real-life examples before us of the original foundation of the church, the apostles, Christ being the cornerstone. He was perfect, Christ was. These men are not perfect, but they were used mightily by God to peel back the darkness of Satan and expose the light of Jesus Christ into the world so that the church becomes a city set upon a hill. Studying these apostles is necessary, and what I want to tell you this morning is also dangerous. It's dangerous, because as we look at the last of the original apostles, we see the reality of apostasy, the reality of apostasy. Let me put that to you in simple terms. We see the reality of the visible church always being a mixture of goats and sheep tares and wheat. And let me just say this, this is always true on this side of heaven. One's view of baptism does not change this. Judas was baptized. One's view of church membership does not change this. There are always false professors who sneak in. One's orthodoxy doesn't even change this since Judas himself was a superb theologian attending the greatest seminary that ever existed as he sat under the feet of Jesus for three years. He's mentioned there in Mark chapter 3, verse 19, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, that is, who betrayed our Lord. That first name, Judas, that was his given name. He bore the same name as Thaddeus. We looked at last week, or James, the son of Alphaeus, whose nickname was Thaddeus his real name being Judas. This is another Judas. That name Judas comes from the Hebrew word for Judah, which was the nickname for the most orthodox half of the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Ironically, however, Judas committed apostasy like the northern kingdom had committed. That name Judah means Yahweh leads. The other Judas... James, the son of Alphaeus, or Thaddeus, was led by Yahweh. But this Judas was led by Satan, Judas Iscariot. That second name, Iscariot, literally means assassin, 
which means some people think he was given that title Iscariot after he betrayed our Lord, which led to our Lord's murder. But the word Iscariot can also mean the dyer, which could be an indication of the fact that that was his vocation. That was his trade before he was called by Christ. He dyed wool. Other people say that Iscariot means the redhead, which I think is impossible because there, most people did not have red hair during, did not have red hair during Jesus' day in that part of the world. So what does Iscariot mean? Well, I think it most likely means man of Kerioth because there was a city in the province of Judea named Kerioth. This would mean that Judas was the only one of the original 12 not from the province of Galilee. Even Jesus was from Galilee, but not Judas. He was from Judea, from this mysterious town, Kerioth. Judas is, we need to admit, somewhat shrouded in mystery, not merely because we find it near difficult and almost impossible that he would be so close to our Lord and yet betray our Lord, but also because we really have no background information on him prior to him coming to know Christ. We know from John chapter 6 and John chapter 13 that his father's name was Simon, but really we can't trace his history of his family back that far because as we've already seen, Simon is a very, very common name. There may, however, be one clue about his character. As I said, The disciples are listed in three groups of four in all the listings of the apostles, signifying their ever-closeness to Jesus. Judas is listed last in the group of the last group, perhaps signifying the fact that he was somewhat aloof from Jesus and the other disciples. I think, perhaps, because he was a Judean Jew, not a Galilean Jew. In fact, I think that he had some side connection with the religious leaders. How else would he have the clout to be able to negotiate a betrayal of our Lord? He was from Judea. He knew the religious leaders on some level of intimacy. And I think what was common in this day was Judean Jews looking down upon Galilean Jews. And so he was somewhat distant from Jesus in the twelve from the very beginning. There was something not right about him from the very beginning. And so he's listed last to indicate the fact that he was the furthest from Jesus because he never really knew Jesus. Peter, James, and John listed first because they were the closest to Jesus. Judas listed last, the furthest from Jesus, and also because there's very little that we know about him. But what we do know is that Judas is the father of apostates. He's the father of apostates. What is apostasy? Apostasy is leaving Christ, leaving the church, because you never were really part of the church and you never really knew Christ. Apostasy is an ugly reality that cannot be solved on this side of heaven, but Judas Iscariot is the epitome of an apostate. An example of one who grew so close to Jesus, but really never knew him. Judas, mark my words, will be included among that twelve on the final day that Jesus looks at and says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you, even though he was part of the apostolic band. Apostasy is both sobering and scandalous. It's soul-damning and at the same time God-glorifying. Apostates are hidden in one sense and exposed On the other hand, they are blessed in one sense temporally and yet cursed eternally. Apostasy is a doctrine many won't preach but should, and it's one most don't want to preach 
but must. As we look at the life of Judas, we find that there are 40 verses in the Bible that refer to Judas's betrayal of Christ. I think that the Holy Spirit wants us to face the reality of apostasy because it mentions Judas so many times. Betrayal of our Lord is what practically marked Judas, but apostasy is what doctrinally marked Judas. And preaching on apostasy, I think, is purifying to the church because it it helps us to see whether or not we are in the faith. It helps us to see who are truly part of the sheepfold of God. The reality of apostasy causes soul-searching. It causes fruit inspection. It's the big elephant in the room that nobody wants to look at or mention, but it must be mentioned. It must be talked about head-on because it needs to be examined so that it can be hated, so that it can be avoided at all costs. So, as we look at the last original apostle of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, I want us to soberly reflect on the doctrine of apostasy. Judas is the apostle of treason. He is the apostle of treason. And therefore, I want to lay before you his treason under five headings. Judas's treason under five headings. Notice with me, first of all, let's talk about Judas's treason formalized. Judas' treason formalized. As I said, every list of the apostles lists them in three groups of four. And the first group is composed of Peter, James, and John, Andrew being the fourth in that, sort of the outside one looking in. The second group, somewhat less close to Jesus. The third group, even less close to Jesus. We even know the least about that group. Judas is in that last group. The last group, by the way, is the least influential. That was true for all the men in the last group, with the exception of Judas, because one could say he had the greatest influence of all, not on the same level, of course, as Peter and John, because Judas' influence was negative. But there is something about Judas that makes us open our eyes when we hear his name. There is something about Judas that we can't turn away from. We are drawn to like a magnet because of the scandal of his life, the severity of his betrayal. His influence echoes down through history as a negative influence of magnificent proportions because his life serves as a warning to us. He's referred to there in Mark 3.19 as Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. That's how he's identified. That's his legacy. The one who betrayed our Lord. He is the only apostle, by the way, who gets his very own verse. And at the same time, he's the only apostle who betrayed our Lord and went his very own way. All the other apostles followed the way, the truth, and the life, but Judas went his own way and thus did not truly come to know neither Jesus nor his Father. Luke 6.16 refers to Judas this way. It refers to him as Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Who became a traitor. Now, he was always a traitor at heart. Betrayal was part of the warp and the woof of his character. And so Luke doesn't mean by that when he says that Judas became a traitor, that it wasn't part of his character. But what Luke is communicating there is the simple fact that there was a day 
that Judas officially became a traitor. His hidden motives were exposed, and that's where we want to begin. When Judas's betrayal was exposed, when it became formalized for all to see. It's important to understand that Jesus probably knew as far back as John chapter 6 that Judas would betray him because we read after many of Jesus' disciples left him, we read in John chapter 6, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And John says, parenthetically, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray Christ. Jesus knew as far back as John 6, and yet, in spite of that, Jesus treated Judas no differently than any of the other apostles. He kept loving Judas. But it's not until John 13 in the upper room, on the night of the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus finally identifies Judas as a traitor, where his betrayal is formalized, his treason is formalized, if you will. Take your Bibles and turn with me to that passage to... John chapter 13. We mentioned the Upper Room Discourse last week when we talked about Thaddeus. Let's turn back to it, but this time to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And Jesus um, has washed the disciples' feet, including Judas's. We'll pick up in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Even though Jesus knew for a while that there would be one who would betray him, he still seems bothered by this because this was the height of disloyalty. It's one thing for someone on the outer band to leave Jesus in John 6. It's another thing here in John 13 for someone as intimately associated with Jesus To betray him, but that's exactly what Jesus is predicting. A duplicitous job of betraying our Lord. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. That that reveals to us the power of hypocrisy. The sheer danger of religiosity. Because apparently, these disciples are having trouble identifying who Jesus is is speaking about. They don't know. One by one, we read in this passage, they go around the room asking, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Am I the one that is going to betray you? Which is really an echo of Psalm 139. They're really praying to our Lord. Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. All of them, except for Judas, are vitally concerned about their eternal souls. It bothers them while they knew one by one they weren't the ones that would betray him. There was something in their hearts that was fearful that maybe they were complicit in some way with the one that would betray our Lord. So they ask him, Lord, is it I? Search me, Lord, tell me. And then we read in verse 29, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So Jesus tells Judas to depart and the disciples don't understand why Jesus is telling 
Judas to depart, they assume, as verse 29 says, that it's because he was the treasurer of the apostolic band, he had the money bag, that he was going to go buy something they needed for the feast or something to give to the poor. Far from it, Jesus was going to receive money to betray our Lord. It is quite telling, on a side note, by Judas's actions that religious hypocrisy possesses no shame and it harbors no guilt. Earlier, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, including Judas, on this very night. Judas had dirty feet, which was noticeable to all, but he also had a dirty heart, which apparently people were oblivious to. Jesus knew that. He had a dirty heart, and yet he still washed his feet. In fact, Judas even says, as recorded in Matthew's account, Matthew 26, Lord, is it I? Is it I, Rabbi, who will betray you? Judas knew the dirty deeds of his heart, and yet he's still feigning humility by following and copycatting what all the other disciples are doing when they genuinely asked, is it I, Lord? He knew it was him. Feigned humility, which always marks religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy, you want to know how you can identify it? Someone that always talks about themselves, someone that always puffs them, themselves up, someone that always use themsel- uses themselves as the standard of godliness, and someone who feigns humility from time to time just to keep you back away from them so that you don't see their hypocrisy. That's what Judas did. Master manipulator. How do we know this? Well, because by this point in John 13, the plan had not only been hatched, but an agreement on a price had been made. So for Judas to act like, is it me that's going to betray you, was the height of dishonesty and religious gamesmanship. And then we see in this passage, verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. Piecing together all of this from the other gospel writers, we see Jesus here extending a morsel of bread most likely dipped in a syrup-like mixture of fruits and nuts, given to Judas by the host, and a host would give to his most valued friend a morsel of bread dipped in this. Right up until the very end, Jesus is showing friendship and love and grace and mercy to Judas. And yet, in the midst of this, Judas still betrays our Lord. Jesus sitting next to the Apostle John, who is reclining at his breast, the Apostle of Love, and apparently Judas is sitting on the other side of him because he gives the morsel of bread to Judas. He's close enough to give it to him and for Judas to eat it. Love on one side of Jesus, fake love on the other side. Jesus knew all along. Judas wouldn't change his mind. You know why? Because he had no change of heart. He wasn't repentant. And apart from repentance, there is no salvation. Apart from confessing your sin, owning up to the fact that God has exposed your sin, and admitting that it is what it is, and repenting of it, there can be no salvation. That is why Judas is in hell today. No repentance. No repentance. He wasn't repentant. And apart from repentance, there is no salvation. Acts is clear. God commands all men everywhere to repent. 
So we can say that all men have a responsibility to repent, but only those sovereignly changed by God's grace have the capability to repent. And yet many today conflate culpability with capability, don't they? Let me be clear this morning. Judas was culpable for his betrayal, but he was not capable of repentance apart from a changed heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. Jesus could wash his feet outwardly, but Judas needed his heart washed. His heart was still dirty like the religious people today and the religious people during Jesus' day who were clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. And all of this is a warning to us on how close we can be to the kingdom and yet still not be in the kingdom. None of these outward shows of love and affection and mercy and friendship by Jesus, did anything on the inside of Judas' heart. The responsibility of not repenting lies solely with the one who refuses to repent, in this case, Judas, because the proper response to God's love and God's grace is is always repentance. And the only way we will repent is if God grants us the gift of repentance. How do we know this? A number of different verses, but if for no other reason, here was Judas receiving the morsel of friendship, sitting next to Jesus, knowing Jesus, and even that didn't bring a change of heart. Not only is there no repentance on Judas's part here, there's not even any remorse. It's a reminder to us, unbelievers, when they're confronted by their sin, if they're an unbeliever, there's no remorse there's no repentance. This is Judas's treason formalized. He's exposed before the twelve. Now they know. Now they know. They will know later on this night when Jesus heads out to the garden and Judas comes with the soldiers to arrest Jesus. What does this teach us about apostasy? Well, first of all, it teaches us that apostates are deceptive. In Judas's case, it wasn't until the end of his outward walk with Christ that he was exposed, teaching us that apostates can deceive everyone, perhaps even themselves. Apostasy is marked by deception. Second, apostasy teaches us that given enough time, apostates usually do reveal themselves. And how do they reveal themselves? They reveal themselves when they are confronted about their sin and instead of repenting of it, they buckle down. They refuse to repent, exposing their own hearts. Third, apostasy teaches us that those who leave Jesus, those who leave the church, may leave the church in a way that ends with a moral failure, in this case Judas Iscariot being the murderer of our Lord because he betrayed him, but it always begins with doctrinal flaws. Moral failures always begin with doctrinal flaws. Judas had a flawed view of the kingdom. Remember last week we spoke about Thaddeus who had a flawed view of the kingdom. Jesus had to set him straight. Simon the Zealot had a flawed view of the kingdom and wasn't set straight until he was called by our Lord, Judas had a flawed view of the kingdom. For Judas, listen to this, it was all about power, it was all about prestige, it was all about profit. 
Once Judas saw that Jesus was not going to physically establish a kingdom on earth, literally reigning over ethnic Israel, and that he was determined to be crucified on the cross on the very night before he was arrested, that's when Judas said, all right, I'm done with this. Done with it. Because Judas was after materialism. He was self-centered. He left the presence of Christ and he departed that upper room. His departure from the upper room began a downward spiral of events, revealing his apostasy at an even deeper level. He left that upper room and went lower than any man has ever gone before or after. But it did not start with that moral failure of betraying our Lord. It started with a doctrinal flaw of misunderstanding what the kingdom of God was about. Judas, in all of his knowledge of theology, had holes in his theology, and he wasn't willing to be corrected by our Lord. Full of pride, full of materialism, which led to his treason. We're considering Judas's treason, and first we've seen his treason formalized, but I want you to note, secondly with me, Judas's treason personalized. Judas's treason personalized. Judas, like most apostates, makes this personal. How many apostates mock Christianity after they leave it? How many blogs are started to mock Christ? How many TikTok videos are made by ex-evangelicals? Why do they do that? I'll tell you why. Because they can't help themselves. They're bound for hell, and therefore they are hell-bent toward personalizing their treason. Instead of blaming themselves, they mock and blame others. Instead of repenting, they ridicule the one they claim to be their Savior. And such is exactly what Judas does. Maybe you've not thought about this, but I want you to think about it. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Because in this passage of Scripture we read, and we could go to to other accounts of this in the Gospels, but we'll just go to Mark since we're preaching through Mark. Mark chapter 14, this is when Jesus now leaves the upper room with the other 11 apostles. He heads to the garden where he so often prayed with the Father. And uh, we read in verse 43, immediately, while he, that was Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes of the elders. Jesus had met Judas with a morsel of bread to show his friendship. Judas meets Jesus with swords and clubs. Not only that, verse 44, now the betrayer had given them, that is this police force, a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he had came, when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and verse 45 says, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. Why in the world does Judas betray Jesus with a kiss? Well, the form of that verb in the Greek, I know you can't see it in the Greek, but it's, uh, it comes from the Greek word phileo, which you're familiar with because it's one of the Greek words for love. In fact, it's the same verb that is used in Luke 7.38 to describe the prostitute in Galilee who kept kissing Jesus' feet. Same verb that was used in the parable of the prodigal, 
When he came home, the father saw him, ran to him, embraced him, and repeatedly kissed him. Same verb that is used in Acts chapter 20 when Paul says farewell to the Ephesian elders. And the Bible says in Acts 20 and verse 37, they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. It's a strong verb that conveys love by physical affection. Judas doesn't kiss the hem of his garment. Judas doesn't kiss his hand. Judas kisses his cheek, the closest thing to Jesus' lips, the most affectionate physical display imaginable. And the tense of the verb suggests a fervent, continual, repeated kissing. May I suggest that nothing could be more shameful even though it was personal. This is the proverbial kiss of death. Why does Judas kiss Jesus like this? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is being mocked by Judas. This is the mocking kiss of an apostate. He's rubbing it in by kissing Jesus. It's unthinkable. Out of all the ways Judas could have betrayed Christ, this is the most hypocritical, shameful, and lowest of the lowest ways to do it. It's adding insult to injury. It's like shooting someone and then kissing the wound out of mockery and feigned compassion and love. While all the other disciples were essentially praying Psalm 139 genuinely from their hearts in the upper room, search me, O God, he went to stab his Lord in the heart, the one he claimed to be his master planting kisses on him. Let me just say this. The professing Christian who makes light of his sin, the professing Christian who mocks Christ in his relationship with Christ, proves he really never knew Christ. This is a mocking kiss. This is a public shaming of Jesus by Judas. Judas's sin was personalized in this kiss of death. And with such an action, this betrayal was all but sealed. But I want us to step back for a moment and ask how a person can get to such a point. And how did Judas get here? How did he get to this low point? At one point in the upper room with Jesus, on the eve of what would be the most Glorious events in the history of the world, securing salvation for sinners through His crucifixion and resurrection. How could He go from that upper room to this downward spiral? Well, we've seen Judas's treason formalized. That's when his apostasy was revealed. We've seen his treason personalized. That's when his apostasy was sealed. Now, let's go back in time and consider Judas's treason analyzed. Judas's treason analyzed. I want us to examine the steps that led to Judas's betrayal. Because in doing so, we see the steps leading to apostasy in any heart. And I, I want to begin in John 6. You don't have to turn there. But apostasy was a common thing among Jesus' disciples. In John chapter 6, the outer band of disciples were clearly composed of the fickle and the shallow. We read in John 6 that many deserted Jesus because he was speaking too theological. He was speaking too deeply. He had said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They thought he meant physical 
physically doing that. They were short-sighted. They were overly simplistic, literalistic. They had trouble understanding figures of speech and metaphors because they were spiritually blind. They couldn't see the kingdom. They didn't have ears to hear. They didn't have eyes to see the king. They didn't understand Jesus' true identity or his mission. And it became too much for these bandwagon jumpers. So they got off the bandwagon that they had jumped on and they deserted Christ. I bring this up because Judas Iscariot was one among many. He's the father of apostates. But he wasn't the only one that left our Lord. But he did hold to a similar theology of those who left our Lord. A popular theology of the day among Israelites that saw the Messiah as an immediate political and military deliverer of ethnic Israel. They viewed Jesus as a physical deliverer, not a spiritual deliverer. This makes sense of the much-needed correction of Thaddeus. Right, the, the much-needed correction of Simon the Zealot. Even Peter had these tendencies. On the very night our Lord was betrayed, he cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. Jesus told him to put away his sword. And here's the point. Peter did put away his sword. Here's the point. Thaddeus said, uh, why are you going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus set him straight on the kingdom And Thaddeus laid down his Israeli flag and picked up the banner of Christ. Simon the Zealot was out assassinating politicians before he came to Christ. He was set straight by Christ. He put down his dagger and he picked up the sword of the Word of God. Not Judas. Judas could not release his hands from the money bag. Judas, here's the point, was consumed with an exterior physical kingdom and all of the pomp and circumstance that would come with that which would equate for him power, prestige, and wealth. He's a materialist at heart. And his materialistic view of the kingdom was rooted in a love for money. His idea of the kingdom was not otherworldly, it was worldly. World domination, prestige, power, wealth, that's what he wanted preoccupied by the fleshly rather than the spiritual. He really demonstrated the character of the devil, didn't he? Remember, the devil tempted our Lord in the wilderness with the kingdoms of the world. Bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. That was Judas. He was a devil. Jesus called him a devil. Instead of honoring Jesus as an object of worship, he desired to use Jesus to become an object of worship himself. He intended to be the object of his own worship, and he was. He would use Jesus to get what he wanted. And it seems to me that the more Jesus predicted his death and revealed that his kingdom was not of the worldly variety that Judas sought after, the more Judas stopped seeking Jesus, the more impatient he grew, the more greedy he grew. In fact, one could even make the argument that Judas... Perhaps above all, the other apostles understood the plan and mission of Jesus more than them. Judas was not stupid. He was perceptive, intellectually and theologically probably superior to the others. And why do I say that? Well, because if he was still confused like the other apostles in the upper room were confused, he would have never had the boldness to do what he did. 
I think he understood more than all the other apostles in the upper room exactly what Jesus was going to do. He was going to go to the cross. There was no one who was going to change his mind. This was the plan and the will of the Father. And it's at that point that this astute student of theology said, all right, if that's the theology you have, I don't jive with that. I'm done. And he left. He committed treason eyes wide open. He wasn't innocent in any way. Not in any way. He wanted power, and when he knew he wasn't going to get power, he left. Judas's betrayal was not a last-minute decision. He wasn't losing self-control at the spur of the moment. He was not a nut job. This is not Hitler. This isn't someone crazy. This is someone who knows exactly what they're doing. Intelligent, intentional, perceptive, calculating. Even when the other 11 are in the darkness. Judas knew exactly what was going on. It bothered the other 11, by the way. As I said earlier, that they might even be complicit in a conspiracy to betray Christ. It bothered them that Jesus would say there was a traitor in their midst. They took it personal. Lord, surely not I. Have I done something to be complicit? Not Judas. He received the morsel of bread, that symbol of friendship. He ate it nonchalantly and openly and then left the room shameless and apostate. Let me just say this. True believers ought to be bothered by traitors disloyal to Christ. There is nothing in all the world that should be more distasteful to a Christian than one who walks away from Christ one who walks away from the church, to borrow the language of Hebrews 10, one who tramples the blood of the covenant underfoot. We should take that personal. That is a sin of the highest magnitude against our Lord. Now these seeds of Judas's betrayal had been planted long before the upper room. He had conditioned his apostate heart long before the kiss of death. And to show that to you, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 12. We're analyzing Judas's steps to betrayal. John chapter 12. You're familiar with this incident? John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. You're familiar with this account, right? Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. A pound was about 12 ounces according to the measurements of that day. Nard was extracted from the root of a plant in India. It was sort of an oil-like substance that was very expensive. It was made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Notice this, verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii. A single denarius was one day's wages. So this means excluding Sabbaths and other days, approximately 300 denarii would have been about a year's wages. A year's wages poured on the feet of Jesus to fill the house with this expensive perfume. 
Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, how pious. That's always what hypocrites do. They're stingy. They're self-focused. And they try to cover that up with a noble goal. Well, we could have used this for the poor. In spite of the accusation from Judas that this was wasteful, for Mary's part, this was a symbol of love and worship and devotion to Christ. Because in verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He rebukes Judas. And John gives to us in this passage a little parenthesis, verse 6. Why did Judas say we could have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor? John says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Ah, now we have revealed to us this treasure the one that everyone trusted with the money bag, was dipping his hand into it, apparently embezzling money on a regular basis. A regular basis. John didn't know at this time that Judas was doing that. It's likely Jesus knew, but by the time John wrote this, John chapter 12, the Holy Spirit revealed to him that this is why Judas said that. And John's revealing it to us. Judas had a surface fascination with Jesus, but that's about it. He liked the idea of Jesus as king so long as this king would give him what he wanted or could get him what he wanted. He loved to be associated with Jesus, but never actually loved Jesus. He loved money. Mary, who apparently wasted this, really wasn't wasting this, according to Jesus. She loved her Lord with an extravagant love. Judas was marked by stinginess and materialism. What a grave warning to us today. Any who want the benefit of Jesus apart from actually knowing and loving Jesus. Here is Judas, the model of a a consummate religious hypocrite. And what was his downfall? The love of physical wealth instead of spiritual wealth. Marked by stinginess, not sacrifice. In love with what Jesus' ministry could give him, but not what Jesus himself could give him in terms of eternal life. It's clear, isn't it? From John chapter 12, Judas's treason was premeditated because he had conditioned his heart to love anything other than Jesus. He loved himself. Himself was on the throne. His betrayal of Jesus was not some last-minute decision. This wasn't something that came out of the blue because what is... Verse uh, 4 says, Judas Iscariot, one of his twelve, who was about to betray him, said, why don't we sell this ointment for 300 denarii and give it to the poor? The seeds of betrayal were already in his heart at this point. Let me just say this, sin always begins in the heart. Always. For an apostate, yes. But even for believers. The seeds of 
fleshly desires are sown and those seeds eventually give full bloom to outward sinful acts. That's always the way it works. James 1.15 says that. When desire or lust, epithemia, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That was the trajectory Judas was on. That's exactly why the gospel is necessary. I want to tell you that morality cannot save you. Religion cannot save you. Good works cannot save you. All of those are outside forces that may impress others and even deceive others and deceive yourself, but they're powerless to change the heart. Judas had his feet washed by Christ, but his heart was still dirty. Apart from a changed heart, sinful desires produce sin that will ultimately lead to eternal death apart from repentance and faith in Jesus. Apostates leave their hearts and minds unchecked and that leads to full-grown sin which leads to death and that always results in ruin and that's exactly what happened to Judas. We've seen Judas's treason formalized when it was revealed. His treason personalized when it was sealed with that kiss. His treason analyzed. The seeds of this betrayal didn't just pop up out of nowhere. The devil may have entered him, but it's not like at that moment he said, okay, now I'm going to go betray our Lord. No, he was already submissive to the devil. The devil was his master way before that. The devil entering him was just a way to lead him in an expedited fashion so that what could be accomplished was the crucifixion of Christ to bring the salvation of sinners to the world. But he was already submissive to the devil. And so... Judas's treason formalized, Judas's treason personalized, Judas's treason analyzed leads us number 4 to Judas's treason finalized. James 1:15 desire when it has been conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth death. That was true for Judas. And we see that unfolding. Uh, let's turn to Matthew 26 to see it unfold. We've seen before our eyes greatest episode of tragedy ever, the most squandered opportunity ever in the life of Judas. And now we see it coming to an end, Matthew chapter 26, pick up in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Christ. So here is the finalized deal of all places at the religious headquarters in Jerusalem with chief priests. Judas became a willing instrument of the devil, and he went to those who were fueled by the devil, that is the religious leaders, leaving that sin unchecked for such a long time, carrying that money bag, embezzling that money to the point that in his heart and in his mind, by the power of the devil, from his own senses, he came up with this plot that involved money, a way for him to get more money. This was his treason finalized. This was the point of no return. Once he did this, there was no turning back. Privy to the miracles of Christ, the public teaching of Christ, the private teaching of Christ, all of it. He squandered the most precious opportunity anyone in the history of the world was ever given. Thomas Watson once said, The same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. That was true of Judas. 
Jesus' rebuke of Judas back in John 12 was a word that would either cause repentance, bringing him closer to Jesus, or it would cause him to be pushed further away from Jesus. In John 12, leave her alone. You'll have the poor with you. You won't always have me with her. Judas, leave the poor alone. I know what's on your mind and heart. Judas knew that was a rebuke. Jesus was rebuking him, calling him to repentance. Judas refused. Instead of being drawn nearer to Christ, he was pushed further away. John 12, 4 says, Judas, the one who was about to betray him, he was already on that breaking point. It's possible that Judas agreed to 30 pieces of silver right after the incident of the perfume anointing Jesus' feet. I say that because in Lorraine Bettner's Harmony of the Gospels, he has this event of John chapter 12, the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary occurring on Friday, March 31st, A.D. 30. Judas's conspiracy meeting with the religious leaders here in Matthew 26 is the following Tuesday, April 4th, A.D. 30. All of these events prompting Judas to do what had been in his heart all along. In fact, we're in Matthew 26. What incident does Matthew record before this meeting with the religious leaders? Well, notice back up in verse 6, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this had been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the this gospel is proclaimed in the world. What she has done will also be done, be told in memory of her. Then notice verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priests. He understood. Mary understood. Mary. Perhaps more than the other eleven, Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to die. I will prepare his body for burial symbolically before he dies. Why did Judas not want that perfume wasted? Because he didn't want Jesus to die. Why did he not want Jesus to die? Because as Jesus died, Jesus could not set up the physical kingdom right then that Judas wanted to secure his power and his prestige. He didn't want money given to the poor. He didn't want Jesus' feet anointed. He didn't want Jesus dead. He didn't want Jesus buried. But once Jesus made it clear, that's exactly what I'm going to do, and Judas knew he couldn't stop him, he then aided Jesus in that out of resentment, bitterness. 30 pieces of silver, not much money. According to Exodus 21.32, it was the price of a slave. But it was the highest he could negotiate with the religious leaders. 
Zechariah 11, we read it earlier, predicts that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The New Testament then comes and calls Judas the son of perdition in John 17, 12, indicating God's predetermination of this betrayal. Even Jesus himself explicitly said that his death was, Luke 22, and I quote, determined. It was determined. But then Jesus said, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It's a very, very important passage in Acts chapter 22, and we have to turn to it. Turn with me, uh, not to Acts 22, but to Acts chapter 2 in verses 22 through 23. We've got to deal with this head on. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. You're familiar with this, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst. You yourselves know. Verse 23, mark this. This Jesus delivered up, watch it, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Predicted by God in eternity past. Planned by God in eternity past. Prophesied in Zechariah 11. But notice verse 23. Peter says, You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, verse 24, but you killed him. Who is the you? The Jews. Who does that get traced back to? The religious leaders. Who does that get traced back to? Judas. Culpable of Jesus' death. The devil is God's devil as Martin Luther said, and therefore God would use the devil and the devil's influence over Judas to accomplish his predetermined plan and foreknowledge before the foundation of the world that there would be a son of perdition that would lead to a betrayal that would lead to his own crucifixion. Judas's betrayal was predetermined. But as we've noted, Judas did nothing to fight that predetermination, did he? Judas did everything he wanted to do. Judas did not do one thing that he didn't want to do. Everything he did was what he wanted to do. He wanted power. He wanted money. He was, it was predetermined by the foreknowledge of God, but he crucified and killed our Lord. You crucified. You killed. You nailed to a cross. Pick your own version of Acts 2, and 23, they all say the same thing. Men crucified Jesus. Judas was part of that, betraying Jesus. And both worked to accomplish what God ordained. Charles Spurgeon speaks about these realities. He says this, and I quote, If I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads to me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity." They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth does spring. 
end quote. In other words, Spurgeon is saying it has been predetermined before the foundation of the world that Judas would be the son of perdition. And yet, at the same time, he is culpable for his sin. And we can understand part of that because we know how God elects. He has a right to do that. And we understand that no person ever acts contrary to that which he wants to do. But beyond that, there is a mystery to it. There's a mystery. He was chosen to be the one who would betray our Lord. There's a mystery to that. There's a mystery to how God can be glorified in that. We accept that God is glorified in that. What he wanted to do, he did. He didn't want to stop himself, and God didn't intervene to stop him. Peering beyond the mysteries of God is not our jurisdiction because the courts of heaven are just. Our duty is to see what led to the betrayal. And I go back to what led to the betrayal. It was a love of money. It was a love of money. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6.10 quickly. 1 Timothy 6.10. You're familiar with it, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. 1 Timothy 6.10. This serves as a warning to us. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have, watch this, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That was Judas. He loved money, wandered away, wandered from the faith. Someone once said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. That was Judas. Sold his soul to the devil, quite literally. The question this morning is, how much is sin worth to you? Is it worth more than the blood of of Christ. The blood of Christ was worth nothing to Judas. Nothing. To Peter, everything. Right? We were not redeemed with the things of this world, gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Not to Judas. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is not Judas losing his salvation. This is Judas never having salvation. And that is true of all apostates. Compromise with the world always results in cowardly acts. Maybe Judas was fearful of when he knew what would happen. If Jesus would be crucified, the other apostles would get what was coming to them as well. Fearful of death, but not fearful of God. Fear of the world, fear of man, but not fear of God. That is an apostate. No conviction, no foundation upon which to plant your feet. You're in it for yourself, and you're out to get whatever you can get for yourself, and once you can't get whatever it is you're trying to get, you're done. You went out from us because you never were truly of us. That was Judas. Many of you are familiar with the life of Billy Graham. A life in many ways that was tragic because he, in his later years, departed from so many orthodox doctrines that we hold dear that he once held to. However, one of his partners in ministry had a more grievous departure, far more grievous. In 1936, a man by the name of Charles Templeton professed faith in Christ. 
He became an evangelist that began preaching the gospel around the world. And he eventually met Billy Graham in the 1940s. They became very, very close friends. You've probably never heard of Charles Templeton unless you've read biographies on Billy Graham. But it was the majority opinion that Charles Templeton was a much better preacher. Much better preacher. He wooed the crowds. But in 1948, Templeton began struggling with doubts regarding God creating the world in seven days. He started to gravitate toward the evolutionary theory more and more. By the way, Billy Graham started on that trajectory and got put back straight. Thank the Lord, but not Templeton. Templeton just continued the downward spiral until in 1957, not 20 years after he began preaching, he declared himself an agnostic. He wrote a book entitled Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Published in 1996. He lived to be in his 80s. Just a couple of years before his death, he was interviewed by a Christian journalist known as Lee Strobel. You're probably familiar with him. He was interviewed on a wide range of issues. But at the end of the interview, he was asked this simple question What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Templeton's voice softened, demeanor changed, head lowered. He said, he's the most important human being that ever existed. And then as his voice cracked, he said these three words, I miss him. I miss him. Tears began to fill his eyes. He began to cry, his body bobbing up and down before he looked at the journalist, waved his hand dismissively and said, enough with that, enough with that. Templeton is an example of an apostate, an example of someone so close to the kingdom and yet never really part of it. Dismissive of Christ, willing to die Without Jesus on his lips, Judas had Jesus on his lips, planning a kiss. But the son of perdition is in hell today because of his treason. We've seen his treason formalized, his treason personalized, his treason analyzed, his treason finalized. I want to close with this his treason demoralized. Demoralized because, listen to me, apostasy, just like it did with Judas and Templeton, always ends shamefully. It always ends in destruction. And the end of Judas's life is a perfect illustration of this. Turn back with me. This will be the last passage we turn to. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. How did all of this end? Miserably. That's how. Miserably. Verse 1, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Verse 3, 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, notice this, he changed his mind. That's different than having a change of heart. He changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. This is what is prophesied in Zechariah 11, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? This is your problem. See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went away and hanged himself. Hanged himself. Was Judas remorseful? Sure. Verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Apostates always sin with eyes wide open. They can't help themselves. They do what they want to do. They don't want Christ. Remorse, yes. Repentance, no. This is not repentance. In fact, this is an attempt either to make up for this deed by buying his salvation or covering it up by saying, I don't have the money. His blood's not on my hands. Either way, it's worldly remorse. It's not heavenly repentance. And just as he unsuccessfully negotiated for more money earlier, he unsuccessfully quiets his own conscience. So what happens? He can't quiet his own conscience, so he ends his own life. Verse 5 And throwing down the pieces of silver, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. Even this was unsuccessful. Because the essence of hell is the torture of anything but a silent conscience. Those in hell today may regret their sin, but they don't repent of it. And in their conscience forever rings the reality of their treason and sin. Not enough to lead to repentance, but enough to bother them, just like Judas was bothered. As Jesus said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That means that Judas is in the eternal lake of fire. It would have been better if he was never born. Judas didn't kill his conscience. He killed himself, but he didn't kill his conscience. It's just as loud today as it was in the moments before he breathed his last. And even his suicide was a failure. We read this in the book of Acts, that um, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. He went and bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Apparently, he wasn't even competent enough to tie the rope secure enough to the branch so that it wouldn't break, and it snapped. Perhaps on his way down, still alive, until he pierced his side with those jagged rocks falling from the cliff. I think that puts 1 Timothy 6.10 in perspective. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Judas was literally pierced with those jagged rocks resulting in his death 
but beginning with his love of money. His death, the graphic and gross picture that Scripture provides as to the demoralizing nature of apostasy. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 1? He refers to Hymenaeus and Alexander who have made shipwreck of their faith. Shameful, demoralizing. Such a sad, but also very sober. Judas is mentioned last, so his sermon comes last. To forever burn in our memories the reality, as we bring this mini-series to a close, of the destructive nature of hypocrisy and apostasy. Christianity isn't a game. It's a matter of life and death. The life of Judas was a tragedy. The most tragic life ever lived. I told you at the beginning of this series there were four listings of the apostles. What I didn't tell you is that uh, the fourth listing in the book of Acts of the apostles leaves Judas out. It leaves him off the final list. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Peter stands up in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. All his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Ekeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us, beginning from baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. They put forth Joseph called or Sabbath, they also put Justice in Matthias. Verse 26, they cast lots, the lot fell to Matthias. He was numbered with the 11 apostles. Judas left off that final list. But more importantly, Judas was left out of the kingdom of God. That's a lesson, isn't it? Your name, name can be on a church membership role, and you still not be in the kingdom. Your name can be on an elder board and you still not be in the kingdom. We don't know much about Matthias, but whoever he was, whatever he became, it was better than Judas. Better to be least in the kingdom than to be out of the kingdom. God chooses those he will save and those that he saves he will preserve. He's still in the business of saving and changing men and women, ordinary people, and doing extraordinary things through them. That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the only power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew and to the Greek. The gospel is for all of those who see their need for Christ and their hopelessness apart from Christ and look to Christ. So, we finish our list of the twelve by asking this question. Is your name found in the book of life? That's the most important list. It's the only list that ultimately matters in the large scheme of things. And our name is only on that list if it was written there from before the foundation of the world. 
But God is faithful to call His elect. And if you hear the voice of the shepherd and come to Him, that is evidence that your name has been written in the book of life. We pray that would be true about all of us this morning. Let us bow. Our Lord, we thank You for what You have shown to us, Lord, as we've looked at the example of Judas, a thoroughly negative example, one that frightens us in one sense because it reveals to us the magnitude of our own depravity, what we are capable of doing apart from Your grace. And yet it is also a reminder to us that You are sovereign over who enters Your kingdom. Lord, we thank You for this series that has shown us the examples of the apostles. It's been a long series, but one in which we've been able to see the grace of our Lord work in real-life individuals. Lord, we pray that that grace would be operative in our hearts. Lord, by Your grace and for Your glory, Lord, that You might teach us and sanctify us through all that we've heard in this series. We ask your blessing upon it, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.